And please turn for the final time in this series to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Our goal, Lord willing, is to look at 1 Corinthians 15:58 this morning, one verse, and next week 1 Corinthians 16, one chapter. So, ideally two lessons left in this book and then we'll take a week break before a new series. And uh, two weeks after next week, Lord willing, we'll start the book of Ecclesiastes. So, such profound truths in that book and uh, important for all of us. So, today, 1 Corinthians 15, 58, one verse starts with a therefore. So, you can take the last few weeks that we spent together in 1 Corinthians 15, all the doctrinal truth. First importance is that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and He rose again on the third day according to the Scriptures. He appeared to many witnesses. He's alive. And therefore, we can know that because He rose from the dead, we will rise from the dead. There's a future for us, a hope for us. We will have different bodies that are perfect, fit for the next world. These bodies are fit for this world, and as this world decays and is cursed and goes down the tubes, if you will, so do our bodies, but not in the next world. So, therefore, 1 Corinthians 15, 58, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. I've entitled this message, Stand There and Do Something. In uh, 1993, a man named Al Mohler, who many of you ministry, or many of you know his ministry, a man named Al Mohler became the president of Southern Seminary in Louisville, Kentucky. Now, you need to know what went on before Al Mohler got there. It was a seminary that had drifted significantly. Theologically, it had drifted to the left. It had embraced theological liberalism. And Al Mohler was chosen to be the new president of this school. Al Mohler was not like the instructors that they currently had. He was different. He sought to bring the school back to orthodoxy, back to sound doctrine. And on his first chapel sermon in the first year of his presidency in the fall, he preached a message called, Don't Just Do Something, Stand There. So the seminary had long had this idea that we want to help the world, we want to be busy and doing all of these things, but it had drifted theologically. So he was calling the school and the professors back to standing on sound doctrine. So don't just do something, stand there. Well, the work that the Lord did in that institution is rather remarkable. Southern Seminary is now a wonderful place to study and to learn sound doctrine in preparation for ministry. But 10 years after that inaugural sermon, he preached in 2003 another beginning of the year sermon at chapel. And this sermon was entitled, Don't Just Stand There, Do Something. So we're not just people filled with sound doctrine in our heads, we then do something with it. We want to make Christ known. We want to build up the church, build up his body. So the ideal way to function as a saved believer is to stand in the truth that saved you, don't waver, and work for the Lord. And you see those two things in our passage this morning. Stand firm and abound in God's work. And that'll be our outline. Two ways we are to respond to our salvation. This is kind of one of those big picture verses in the Bible. It gives you kind of a big picture view of the Christian life. Two ways we are to respond to our salvation. First, stand in gospel truth. And secondly, abound in gospel work. Stand in gospel truth and abound in gospel work. And we remember that the gospel is the main focus of Paul's teaching, the apostles' teaching, Jesus' teaching. We saw that in chapter 15, 3 to 4. Look back at those verses. After all that Paul's told them about head coverings, men's and women's roles, favoritism in the church, sexual relationships between husband and wife, suing one another, after all Paul's told them, 
He reminds them of what's most important. Verse 3, chapter 15. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. That's what's most important for us to understand. And so now, in light of the fact that we have been forgiven of our sins, that Christ has been raised from the dead and we will be raised from the dead, Paul says, stand in that truth and work for the Lord with the time that He gives you on this earth. So let's look first. Stand in gospel truth. Stand in gospel truth. This is the first part of the verse. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable. He uses two terms there, steadfast and immovable, which don't have much of a difference He joins them together for emphasis. There is a slight difference, and I'll talk about that in a moment. But let's not miss first the therefore, my beloved brothers. Now, if you've been here throughout our series through 1 Corinthians, you've you've probably felt a number of stings, felt a number of rebukes. As Paul rebukes the Corinthian church, you kind of feel, I've engaged in some of those errors, some of those sins. I've thought like the world in this way or that way. I have failed to demonstrate love like it says in 1 Corinthians 13. But I don't want you to mistake correction for a lack of love. And it is very easy to do that in today's world. In today's world, if you correct someone or disagree with someone, oh, you don't love me. Well, It's good to set that mindset aside if you're going to be a follower of Christ. One of the things that we we enjoy or appreciate as followers of Christ is our Lord continuing to instruct us. It's His way of shepherding us, and He does so by His Word. And so there are ways that we need correction. Think about it this way. You've got children. When they were born, you didn't wrap them up and bring them home and think, you are so secure in my love. You, you are so much mine. I will never need to correct you anymore. I mean, you're secure, so no need to, to, to teach you or correct you or rebuke you or exhort you. No, no, no. We know that correction that parents give is because they love. Don't run and play on the freeway. Oh, how harsh, mom, how harsh. No, no, I love you, Okay. So, it's important to see that after all the rebukes, after all the corrections, Paul says here in this final big exhortation of chapter 15, therefore, my beloved brothers, the ones I love, and obviously we know he's meaning brothers and sisters here, my beloved brethren, be steadfast and movable. See, when God loves someone, he teaches them. When God loves someone, he encourages them. When God loves someone, he rebukes them. He corrects them. He guides them. He shapes them. He protects them. And this is his ministry through the Apostle Paul. So just know that as believers, we're loved by God, and that's why he teaches us. That's why he exhorts us. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable. Two words again, speaking of stability. The first word, steadfast, not turning aside yourself. So think of maybe standing firm on the ground, feet planted. Maybe you're wearing cleats or something that dig into the grass, all right? So be steadfast. You are standing firm, immovable. You are steadfast so that nothing knocks you over. Or in the words of Ephesians 4, the wind doesn't blow you from one teaching to the next. So steadfast is more you looking down and thinking, I am standing steadfast. And immovable is I'm not going to be moved by something outside of me. All right? So you stand and don't be moved by something outside of you is what you could understand the Apostle Paul to be saying. He tells the Corinthians to stand in the hope of the gospel and in the hope of the resurrection. Now, this is a theme in Paul's writings. It's also a theme in Peter's writings and John's writings. The apostles, the first followers of Jesus, knew that just being a follower of Christ didn't mean that you were immune or, or, or not maybe potentially able to be blown by winds of doctrine or different ways of thinking. 
So they call on believers to stand in the hope of the gospel and to be careful of shifting away from it. Listen to what Paul says in Colossians 1, verse 21 to 23. And you were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds. He is now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death. He's reconciled you in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. So you once were this, now you are saved by the death of Jesus Christ. And then listen to this, this little word, this little two-letter word. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel which you've heard. There are a lot of people that say that they are trusting in the hope of the gospel. And you could really say, when someone makes a claim like that, time will tell. We'll see if that's true. What happens when the riches of this world are dangled in front of you? Will you leave the hope of the gospel to pursue those? What happens when persecution arises? Will you leave the hope of the gospel that Christ has redeemed you and will bring you home to heaven because it's just too painful, the persecution's too difficult, you leave the hope of the gospel. So, Paul knows that this is a temptation for people who claim to trust in Jesus Christ. Be steadfast, immovable. Don't shift away from the hope of the gospel, the security with which you have. Now, our Lord taught this. Paul doesn't just kind of get this on his own. This was taught by Jesus. Jesus, in fact, taught his disciples why people start with God, in quotes, and then eventually walk away from him. Trust in Jesus, in quotes, but eventually prove that that trust had no roots and they walk away. Jesus taught why this happens. So I want you to see why this happens. Go to Matthew 13. Turn over to Matthew 13. And it's interesting, Jesus taught this to the disciples because they were so perplexed. So many people, after seeing miracles and hearing some of Jesus' teaching, were saying, we're in, we're coming, we're following you. And then over time, they would start to leave, peel off. And the disciples didn't really understand why. Why is this happening? And so Jesus explains why in Matthew 13. Look at verse 18. He's explaining a parable he just told. It's a parable where seed is sown on different types of soil and only one type of seed ends up taking root. The others sprout up for a time and then they're no more. Jesus says this, Hear then the parable of the sower. When anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away what's been sown in his heart. That is what was sown along the path. So there's some soil, some gospel presentation, some, some people we tell about Jesus and immediately just doesn't resonate. I don't need Jesus. I don't want Jesus. I, I, I'm fine. I'm not sinful. I don't need that. Other people are worse. Whatever it is, just, just immediately gone. And here Jesus is saying is, the enemy just steals that seed. But then he goes on. Verse 20. As for what was sown on the rocky ground, this is the one who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy, yet he has no root in himself, but endures for a while. And when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately he falls away. So there's the gospel shared, gospel presented you can have hope in Jesus Christ, and there's an immediate response of, yes, I want that. I'm with him. Maybe baptized, joining a church, and then mom and dad and extended family don't like my new way of life, don't like my new hope, and I love my parents. I don't want to lose my family over this. The persecution arises, and they tend to drift away from the things of the Lord, drift away from following God because they don't want the persecution, don't want the trouble. Jesus says that happens sometimes. And then he continues. Verse 22, as for what was sown among the thorns, this is the one who hears the word, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word, 
and it proves unfruitful. So there's another type of person who hears, I respond to Jesus, I need forgiveness of my sins, I'm in, but in their heart is a love of wealth, love of things, love of stuff, love of status that the world can give. And when those things are in competition with the things of the Lord, I'm going to go to those things. When I end up daydreaming about my life coming up, I daydream about the riches, the stuff, the status, and have really little time for the things of the Lord. And over time, the enemy puts things in our place, and our heart goes where it wants to go. So this is the person that, man, they, they had a profession of faith, they, they were baptized, and you know, they, they were together with us for a time, but, but the allure of the world ends up drawing them away. And Jesus is teaching, this is why people leave. Some persecution, some allured by the world. And then, verse 23, there's a different kind of soil. As for what was sown on the good soil, this is the one who hears the word and understands it. He indeed bears fruit and yields, in one case, a hundredfold, in another 60, in another 30. So, notice, the one that falls on the good soil is something that then produces for the Lord. Their life has been brought from darkness to light, and they start to look like light. They start to give life to things around them. They benefit their family. They benefit their church. They benefit the world. They, they produce fruit for Jesus. They live in, in a little way like Jesus in wherever they go. Their workplace is better because they're there. Their team is better because they're there. Their class is better because they're there. They're producing fruit. They're even rescuing people from darkness, bringing them to the light. There's fruit. Now notice, by the way, there's no category for the one that receives the word, continues with Jesus, and doesn't bear fruit. That's why Paul says in verse 15, 58, continue abounding in the work of the Lord. Christians are fruit bearers. If you're not a fruit bearer, has the word taken root? All right, you could ask that question. But again, I take you to Matthew 13 because Paul is saying, continue don't shift away from the hope you have in the gospel, and that's directly related to Jesus' teaching. Continue. Hold on to what you've heard. Don't be allured. Don't be troubled by persecution. Continue hanging on. Continue being steadfast and immovable. All right, back to 1 Corinthians 15. Now, hopefully, me going through Matthew 13 brings a little bit of sobriety to your life, hopefully no one's saying, I understand that there are some soils like that, but there's no way I could ever be lured away from Christ. Paul's told us in 1 Corinthians 10, let the one who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. So there should be a humility. Maybe the better posture is, Lord, I am committed to you. Keep my heart fixed on you. Let me see the futility of the world when I'm persecuted or criticized, let me take joy in that because I'm joining with you. I'm sharing in your sufferings. Don't let me be so troubled by that that I, that I weaken my grip on you, that I step away from you a little bit because it's unpopular. So I think there should be a certain sobriety here. When Paul says, be steadfast and movable, it's good for us not to say, oh, I'm good. I'm good, Paul. No, no. Thank you, Paul. I need the reminder to be steadfast and immovable. Now, there's an important application for us here. Paul's saying this to the church. It's not just this individual, that individual. He's saying this to the church. And one thing we know from the New Testament is that standing firm is a corporate endeavor. I'll say it this way. We need each other to cross the finish line together. We can't do this alone. We can't. Now, I've told you this before, the book of Hebrews is a book written to charge people who claim to be followers of Christ to continue to the end. They're suffering persecution, and many of them are walking away, and he's saying, don't do that. And so, the book of Hebrews is a great book to study, to dive into. If, if you're maybe tempted to, to kind of shift from Christ because you've been suffering for it, 
to maybe distance yourself from him because the Christian life is hard, read the book of Hebrews. A couple places in Hebrews, he talks about the corporate endeavor of helping one another stay firm and fixed. Listen to these verses. Hebrews 3.12 is a key verse for this. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. Now, what's going to help you to not do that? Next verse. But exhort one another every day, as long as it's called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. One of the things a healthy church does is it helps speak to one another on a daily basis so that we don't harden our hearts toward the deceitfulness of sin. Hey, I, I hear you talking about this a lot and that a lot, and you're going there and doing this. Be careful, brother. Be careful, sister. I'm going to text you when you get there and try to encourage you. Stay steadfast. <laughs> Stay committed here. That's the type of talk you hear in a healthy church. Now, again, in today's world, anytime you rebuke me or warn me, you're mean to me. We can't believe that lie in this church. Hey, I hear you talking a lot about these hopes and dreams, these things that you're pursuing. I don't hear the same talk that you used to have about wanting to serve the Lord and work for Him and help His people and make His gospel. I don't, I don't hear the same thing. Be careful there. That's a great conversation for a local church. But again, some people don't want that. I don't want that type of accountability. Well, then what they want is something other than what is Christian. This is the Christian way. We help one another. I saw a little video um, a number of months back, and it was uh, a runner, evidently some long-distance run, and they basically collapsed about 100 yards from the finish line. They were in first place. Just whole body seized up, cramped, could barely move. And the second place runner comes up behind and picks this person up, and they go and cross the line together. And the little caption was, this is how the church is supposed to work. <laughs> and that's absolutely true. We can't run an endurance race on our own. None of us are strong enough. That's why the author of Hebrews writes and says, exhort one another, help one another, this is what we do. We pick one another up and we limp across the finish line together. This is, this is what the church does. So if you say, I'm going to be steadfast and immovable, well, if that's true, you're going to do it with your arms locked around other believers. I'm going to be steadfast and immovable because they're helping me to be steadfast and immovable. That's the Christian life. Hebrews 10 Another passage. So, so remember Hebrews 3 that I just read talks about exhorting one another daily. So, so this daily encouragement, daily exhortation, daily help. And husbands and wives do this in the body. Friends do this in the body. So small group Bible studies do this on a daily basis, regular basis. But then there's something special about a one-day-a-week exhortation. Hebrews 10. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. See the same theme? For he who promised is faithful. So, so listen, this is so good. This is human responsibility and God's, God's work coming together. So you hold fast the confession you made. When you stood up there in the waters of baptism and said, I am following Jesus. He is my Lord. I've died to sin. I've come out. I'm now alive in Christ. I follow Jesus. The writer of Hebrews is saying, hold fast to that. Keep hanging on to that. Do something about that. Grab on to Jesus. Keep going. And then he says, because he who promised is faithful. Why does he say that? As he calls you to hold on to Jesus, he reminds you that he's holding on to you. So, so these things work together. So we just saying, he will hold me fast. You know one of the ways he does that? By exhorting you to remain steadfast and you then remaining steadfast. And you look back and you go, Oh my goodness, I was steadfast because he was holding me fast. This is how this works. Take care, brother, or let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. 
Let us consider, think about how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. So there's a daily ministry to help one another cross the finish line together, to stay steadfast, stay thinking rightly about the truth, stay committed to Jesus. And there's also a weekly gathering together that we're not to neglect so that we are reminded to stay steadfast, to encourage one another all the more as the day, the day of Christ draws near. So again, when Paul says to the church, be steadfast and movable, the whole New Testament would assume that you're staying firm, staying steadfast by the help of other people, by the help of your brothers and sisters. Statements like this are good statements to find in a church community. Brother, Jesus died for you. Don't worry. He's not going to stop being faithful to you, to the person who's discouraged about finances or whatever it may be. Jesus died for you. He's not going to stop being faithful to you. That kind of encouragement is what some people need. Well, all people need that. It's just when, when you need it. Okay, another statement you could hear in a healthy church, you don't need to compare yourself to other moms and dads. You are righteous in the eyes of God through Jesus Christ. You live before Him. No need to compare. You're justified in His sight. Now simply seek to be faithful with what He tells you. No need to look around and compare and to wonder if you don't measure up. You, through Jesus, because of Jesus, measure up in the eyes of God. That's what you should dwell on, sister. That's what you should dwell on, brother. Those are the kind of statements that keep people going. People need to be reminded of, that help people stay firmly rooted in the gospel. Brother, sister, you seem to be so excited about so many different things lately, and it seems like your zeal for the body and your zeal for others knowing Christ is not what it once was. Is that true? Be careful. Can I pray for you about that? Is there any way I can be of help there? Those are statements. Those are questions that are good, that are healthy. But again, please don't believe the lie. That's an inappropriate thing to say. Christianity is a team sport, and we help one another. And all of us need those reminders. All of us need those helps. All of us do. Or maybe this one. I know your family or friends are angry because of the stand you've taken. You won't go to that wedding. You won't endorse that. You won't cave in to what everyone wants you to do about this situation. Don't be discouraged. Jesus says to rejoice when you're persecuted. You are communing with Him in a very special way. He knows what you're going through and He cares. Those are statements that help people stand firm when persecution comes. Those are the types of statements that we should be uttering to one another to help one another cross the finish line together. That's how the church is supposed to work. So Paul says, be steadfast, immovable. Because we can sometimes be moved. And we need to remember the call to trusting in what Christ has done for us. So stand in gospel truth. There's a second response to our salvation. Abound in gospel work. Abound in gospel work. And even those little sentences I just walked you through, people uttering those types of sentences are doing gospel work. They're helping believers be strengthened. They're helping encourage believers to stand and, and to be immovable. So abound in gospel work. Paul here at the end of 58 and elsewhere in his writings, exhorts believers to do the work of the kingdom. He says, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Now, it's important to note that Paul talks about different types of work in his writings. Okay, sometimes we think of work and we think of 
the nine to five job we do or the job that we did or the career we want to have one day. We think of work that way. And that is addressed in Ephesians. That's addressed in Colossians chapter three, working, doing that work, making shoes, building tanks, selling insurance, whatever it is, doing that as if we're doing it to our boss, Jesus. So we work hard for that. But when Paul uses the phrase work of the Lord, he's not talking about that type of work. So everybody does some sort of work to put food on the table, to pay the bills, to help the family stay cared for. Everyone does some sort of work. The work of the Lord in Paul's writings is the promotion of the kingdom, the work of the kingdom, kingdom work. So that could be anything like strengthening the believers, you see that in Paul's writings, or making the gospel known through your words to the lost, work of the Lord. So you're seeking to introduce people to Christ or to help people continue in Christ, work of the Lord. And that's what Paul's getting at here. It's not just any job, it's, it's that type of work. So all believers are to do that type of work. Some do it and they do a nine-to-five job over here. Some do it and they're a stay-at-home wife and mom over here. Some do it and they do this as a business. But all believers are to abound in the work of the Lord. So you might go and sell insurance, but you're also part of a community where you help build up other believers and you have as a desire and an endeavor to make the gospel known to those who are unbelievers around you. That's the work of the Lord all right, in Paul's writings. So the promotion of Christ's kingdom, caring for one another as kingdom citizens and helping other people become kingdom citizens, work of the Lord. Now that's contrasted in a verse that we looked at a couple weeks ago, right? 1532, go back to chapter 15, verse 32. He quotes a saying of the day, and this is how people were living, <coughs> 15 chapter 32, let us eat and drink for tomorrow we die. I want you to see the contrast here. And we know because we went through this passage, he's critical of that type of mindset. And he's telling the church at Corinth, don't fall into that worldly thinking. Hey, I got one life. I'm going to enjoy it as much as I can. I'm going to pursue the enjoyment of it as much as I can. Let's eat and drink. Tomorrow we're out of here. We die. It's the end. Paul says it's not the end. There's an eternity coming. There are rewards coming. There's a new resurrection life coming. So you Christians think differently than they are. You be always abounding in the work of the Lord. See the contrast there. So the non-Christian way of thinking, let me get all I can out of this world because tomorrow it's over. The Christian way of thinking, it's not over tomorrow. It's not over even after this body dies. There's a resurrected life coming, and so I'm going to work because the things I do now matter in eternity. That's the difference. So working, in a sense, is uniquely Christian. We work, we do the work of the Lord because we have a hope for the future. We, we pray and we're nervous about meeting someone at the coffee shop to read through the Bible together. We're nervous about that. We're, we hope it goes well and we're asking people for help. What would you do? How do I do? Uh, why do we put ourselves through all of that? Because it matters. It matters. That's eternal work. That's the kind of thing the Lord has called us to do. Eternity's real. The things that we do now matter for eternity. So this is not eat and drink for tomorrow we die. This is Jesus rose again, you will rise again, so abound in the work of the Lord. And then this knowing that your labor is not in vain. This is so good. I need to hear this often. You need to hear this often. And again, like I mentioned before, sometimes we compare ourselves so much to others. Yeah, I just don't think I'm a great small group leader. I mean, 
look at this other person's small group. I mean, they're so happy and they're such a gifted teacher. I mean, I just do my best and I feel like I'm fumbling around, but I, I think I got it and I hope it's benefiting someone. Your labor is not in vain. The results are God's. All you can control is seeking to be faithful. Be faithful. He's created people differently. So that person's, you know, the poster boy or poster girl for a Bible study leader. Can you study and seek to teach in a way that God's gifted you? Well, yeah, I can do that. Your labor's not in vain. Your labor's not in vain. Well, I don't have much to offer. When I was younger, I could do so much, and now I'm in bed half the day. I can't do much. Well, what can you do? I can, I can pray for the church. Your labor is not in vain. That's not, that's not nothing to God. So when we follow what God says, we know that as we seek to serve Him in however we can with all of our limitations, that labor is not in vain. But when we compare ourselves to other people, oh, I don't do that like He does or like she does. Don't play the comparison game. All throughout the Scriptures, people are, people are hailed, honored for little acts of service that they do here and there giving someone a cup of cold water, washing the feet of the saints. Those things are all important. Those are the work of the Lord. So know that when you work for the Lord, your labor is not in vain. There are rewards coming. Now, all throughout 1 Corinthians, he's been talking about the work of the Lord. This is a theme that we've seen in this book. In chapter 3, verse 8, he talks about maybe different apostles or different preachers that they had. Remember, everyone had their favorites, their plain favorites. Oh, I love Apollos. And oh, well, Apollos is okay and everything, but Paul really cares for us. That's such a horrible thing to go through, but hence we do it. He's saying, don't do that. Don't do that. He who plants and he who waters are one. So Paul's saying, I planted the church. I left. Apollos came and watered the church. Guess what? We're the same. We're both doing the work of the Lord. Stop, stop comparing us and see how we're together. We're both doing the work of the Lord. He who plants and he who waters are one, and each will receive his wages according to his labor. So Paul knows that while he and Apollos are working right now, one day they will get paid for it by God. And it's interesting. He isn't saying in 1 Corinthians, see, that's what apostles do. Apostles work and one day they'll get paid. Well, here in 1558, he assumes that all Christians will work and one day then get paid, get rewarded. So it's not just that work is for the ministry professionals, the pastors, the apostles. No, working is just an everyday Christian endeavor, doing the work of the Lord. In 1412, he says this, Remember, they're, they're, doing, they're using their spiritual gifts to make much of themselves. They're puffing themselves up. And he tells them, you work at building up the church. 1 Corinthians 14, 12. So with yourselves, since you're eager for manifestations of the Spirit, strive to excel in building up the church. The word building implies work there. You're building. You're doing something to help the church. So again, this has come up throughout 1 Corinthians. In 15.10, Paul says, well, let me read it, 15.10. By the grace of God, I am what I am, and His grace toward me was not in vain. So God saved me, but it wasn't useless for Him. Something was going to come out of that for God. What was going to come out of it? The work that Paul would do. Verse 10, but by the grace of God, I am what I am, and His grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that's in me. So you see how gospel work is prized all throughout the book. In 16.10, we'll see this next week. When Timothy comes, see that you put him at ease among you, for he is doing the work of the Lord. Put him at ease. When Timothy comes, give him a little rest. He's doing the work of the Lord. He's commending Timothy for his work. Verse 15 of chapter 16. Now, I urge you, brothers, you know that the household of Stephanus were the first converts in Achaia, and that they have devoted themselves to the service of the saints. So now we learn that a, that a household of a man named Stephanus, 
We don't know how many people were in that house. Maybe did that include workers in that house? Did that include children? We don't know, but we know that it was just more than Stephanus. So Stephanus' household devoted themselves to the service of the saints. That's commended here. And you don't need to turn there. I'm just going to read you this from another book. Again, the idea being Christians are workers. We do the work of the kingdom. Listen to Paul's conclusions at the end of Romans 16. I commend to you our sister Phoebe, a servant of the church at Centria. Phoebe is commended for her work for the church. Greet Prisca and Aquila, my fellow workers in Christ Jesus. So this isn't just a man's thing, it's a woman's thing also. Men and women work in the church. They seek to help the church. And they, verse 4, risk their necks for my life. Greet Mary, who has worked hard for you. Verse 9, greet Urbanus, our fellow worker. Verse 12, greet those workers in the Lord, Tryphena and Tryphosa. Greet the beloved Persis, who has worked hard in the Lord. Timothy, my fellow worker, greets you. This is one of Paul's favorite ways to describe a Christian as a worker. So back in 1 Corinthians 15, 58, it's no surprise that he says, hey, because there's another life to come, because you're going to live forever, he's put you in a place today to do work that will not be in vain. Keep abounding in the work of the Lord. That word abounding, this doesn't say, hey, Christians, maybe just consider doing something for Jesus. No. Keep going. Keep doing it. Keep abounding. Now, I understand, you know, even the idea of um, not being as able-bodied as you, as you once were, and maybe, well, I worked 50 years for this company, but now I'm retiring because I can't do the job like I once did, and someone else can take my place, and I get that. Nothing wrong with that. But if at your retirement as a Christian, you stop working at everything altogether, there's something wrong here. Keep abounding in the work of the Lord. So you might retire from your career, but you don't stop working until he brings you home. Now, again, you might not be able to work like you did when you were 25. Well, I was, you know, going and meeting this person and doing that and going on missions trips, and I can't do that anymore. Okay, what can you do? I can pray. I can give. I I can encourage. I can write a note. Those are huge. Those are great things. Keep abounding in the work of the Lord. And I love it. Again, I, I tell you this all the time. I love being one of the pastors of this church because this, is, this church is a beehive. So many people buzzing in and out, doing so much work throughout the week, helping in little ways. And so many of these things we find out about way down the road, that person wrote that card and that was such a big ministry at that moment. What a great thing. What a great thing to do, abounding in the work of the Lord. And this is just a reminder, again, I showed you earlier how Paul got the exhortation of teaching people to remain steadfast from Jesus. Well, Jesus is the one that taught us about work in the first place. This is it something just, this is just Paul's thing. Hey, work for the Lord. Ah, it's just kind of Paul's thing. No, it was Jesus' thing. Jesus, in his earthly ministry, was doing all of this work, all these healings, doing all this ministry, caring for people, even when he was tired. And his expectation wasn't that the disciples and even his disciples 21 centuries later, us, would stand by and go, oh, how sweet. Look at Jesus working. I'm just sitting on my lawn chair, you know, with my soda. Jesus is working. No. John chapter 9, the man born blind. Jesus, why is this guy born blind? Did he sin or did his parents? Funny how in their minds that's the only option. No, no, no. That's not it. He's blind because the glory of God is going to be shown through his life. And then Jesus said this, we, not I, so far Jesus and John has been doing a lot of the work. Now he looks to the disciples and says, we must work the works of him who sent me, the works of the Father. As long as it's day, night is coming when no one can work. This is Jesus telling the disciples, listen, 
the day of judgment's coming. After that, no one can work. Daytime now, guys, time for us to work. Time for us to get to work. Ephesians 2, you know this. It's one of your favorite verses. You memorized it growing up as a Christian, maybe, if you grew up in a Christian home. By grace we've been saved through faith, not, a gift, uh, not of ourselves, a gift of God so that no one can boast. We are created then, chapter 2, verse 10, for good works which he prepares before us. So we're not saved by our works. We're saved by his grace. But then he says, now that you're mine, I've got a path for you. I've got work for you to do. Christians are workers. Christians work. And our Lord taught us this. Our Lord was busy working, and he was gathering in people to do his work with him. Now again, I don't want you to think that the work of the Lord is just what I do or what those paid in full-time ministry do. You can't get that from the New Testament. The New Testament has people who aren't paid in full-time ministry, doing work, caring for the body. I read you some of those examples. So work is something we all do, and we're all built differently. We all have different opportunities. I'm just going to give you some examples of working for the Lord. Students, young people, invite your friends to church. Ask your friends if they'd read the Bible with you. Tell them about Jesus. One of my close friends, Jesse, was a high school student, came from a divorced family, didn't go to church, didn't know Christ. A, a teammate on the soccer team started telling him about Jesus, asking him questions about what he believed, invited him to church. On an Easter Sunday, Jesse was converted. He texted me on Easter Sunday before our service and said, hey, I'm praying for you. I'm just reminding you that I was saved on an Easter Sunday after I was invited to church by a high school student, a high school friend. And it was, it was so encouraging. But that teammate, just doing the work of the Lord, high school student, maybe you're in bed, you can't even come to church, maybe you're watching online, you can't move. You can pray. We would love if you would pray for this church. We would love if you would take the prayer request list that we send out each week and pray through that. Lift up the needs of your brothers and sisters. The Lord listens to prayer. He listens. He bends his ear to listen. That's huge. You can pray. You can sing. You can help others gather around your bed to hold fast as they see you dying, but holding fast to Jesus. That is such a great work for the people around your bedside. That's such a great thing for them to see. There's plenty of work there. Those of you who work to prep Bible studies, and there are so many of you in this church, know that your labor is not in vain. Thank you for your work. Reading the Bible with a non-Christian, asking the Lord, Lord, give me someone to read the Bible with. Give me someone to meet with to show them you in the Scriptures. That's the work of the Lord. Encouraging someone with the Word by text or note or face-to-face. -face. Texts can encourage people, bolster people, strengthen people. That's work of the Lord. Serving children in the church, helping disciple one another's children so they see a community of people believing the same things and pointing kids to the same Christ. That's a great work, and so many of you do that. Serving college students, high school students, I mean, there are people that leave the comfort of their own homes on Wednesdays to go hang out with junior hires and high school students because they want to see them love Christ. What a great work they do. Same thing with college students. Discipleship happening. Do you know that there are people in this church who go to the juvenile detention center once a month to teach Bible studies to the precious young people there? They pray about it. They pray for them. They teach them the Bible and they sit with them. How many of those kids have never sat with an adult who didn't want something from them or abused them or hurt them? But there are people in this church who go and sit with them and care about them and listen to them and seek to introduce them to Christ. That's the work of the Lord. That's good stuff. 
It's not even a formal ministry of our church. People just go and do it. Serving families in the rescue mission, going and preparing lessons for little ones and ladies, seeking to point them to the anchor of the soul, Jesus Christ. These ladies, kids have such a hard life, some because of other people, some maybe because of their own decisions, but either way, we've all (laughs) made poor decisions that have hurt us. We've all been affected by other people, but there's someone we can hold on to, the God-man who came because He loves. We can introduce them to Him. People are doing that in this church. That's the work of the Lord. Traveling to serve the students at Indian Bible College, students that come from Native American nations become followers of Christ, and many of them lose their families because of it. And they say that they have to make that decision of, will you follow Christ or stay with your family? Kind of like when Muslims come to faith in Christ, they're dead to their family, that's it. And people from this church go and drive up there and encourage them, encourage them in their studies, encourage them with their in what they're learning. They provide meals for them at their monthly chapels. That's the work of the Lord. Traveling to Nicaragua, Rome, other partners that we have in ministry, going to encourage them, strengthen them, praying for them. Even your regular giving that we do each week, a portion of that goes to ministries that we seek to support, seek to bolster up. That is a very second John and third John thing to do. And even your giving is the work of the Lord there. Reading the Bible with another believer. Hey, Andrew mentioned Hebrews on Sunday, and I know that you're struggling. You're struggling to continue, struggling to remain steadfast. You want to read Hebrews together? Let's just sit down and do a, do a chapter or a paragraph. I don't know. Let's read it and pray together. Leading your, Bible, leading your family in Bible teaching reading a verse, explaining it, trying to make some sense of it, praying, helping to bring the Scriptures, the Word of life to your family, hearing of needs in your small group, and instead of thinking, oh, someone else will take care of it, how can I take care of it? That's the work of the Lord. Organizing get-togethers so people can feel connected and have fellowship, Christian fellowship, so that they, for years, can then be spurred on by people, by friends that they've met. That's the work of the Lord, getting believers together. Leading in singing helps us recite the truths of our faith as we're praising God and singing to one another, and you're helping to lead us through the singing. It's the work of the Lord. These are not small things. Know that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. This summer, as you know, we were on a sabbatical um, we were at a church that was going through 1 Corinthians 15. I was very grateful for that, looking for all the help I could get. <clears throat> and uh, the pastor referenced 1558, knowing the Lord, your labor is not in vain. And, and afterwards, I was standing there waiting for um, one of my sons to come over, and uh, the pastor was right there, so I just went and introduced myself. I said, hey, I'm an American pastor on sabbatical. I just want to thank you for your ministry. It's really meant a lot to our family these last couple of weeks. And as soon as I said that, he looked at me and pointed and he said, your labor is not in vain. And for, for whatever reason, like my heart, <laughs> you know how Wesley said my heart was immediately warmed? <laughs> That's how I felt. It just felt like being on fumes for so long, but whew, that was so helpful. And that's not just something for preachers. Paul's telling the church, men, women, young people, the labor that you do for the Lord is not in vain. I know your parents are sick and dying, and you've gone to be with them, and you've tried to bring the gospel to them, your your parent who's dying, and they will not hear it, they won't listen know that you just articulating the gospel, showing care for your father or mother, that's not in vain. The Lord knows that. The Lord sees that. 
You shared the gospel with your neighbor over and over again. It started off so great, such a great relationship, and now they don't want to talk to you, and even people around the neighborhood don't want to be around you because then you're going to try to give them some religion. Okay. Your labor is not in vain. Your labor is not in vain. You've gone to the rescue mission for years now, or you've, you've taught at this or that Bible study, and no one seems to be coming to faith in Christ. Your labor is not in vain. It's His deal to reap the fruit. It's His deal to, to bring life. You just simply be faithful with what He calls you to do. Your labor is not in vain. It's not in vain. I think we've got a slide here. I want to I read to you a paragraph from the Westminster Confession. Westminster Confession articulates how we serve one another and care for one another, and it just says that this is a Christian thing we do. I thought this was pretty poignant, so I wanted to put it up on the screen. It's, a, 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 it's you know, written hundreds of years ago, so you have to go slow and understand it, but let, let's digest it together. Saints, by profession, are bound to maintain a holy fellowship and communion in the worship of God. So, when we say that we are Christians, we profess our faith in Jesus, that means we also join a group of people that we now fellowship with, care about as they care about us. And in performing such other spiritual services as tend to their mutual edification, as also in re- relieving each other in outward things according to their several abilities and necessities. So, right there it's saying we are in this fellowship because we mutually need to be edified together. And because sometimes we have needs or others have needs, and that's the group that we can then help meet one another's needs in. That's what this is saying. And then, which communion or this communion as God offers opportunity is to be extended unto all those in every place who call upon the name of the Lord Jesus. So there's a fellowship that we have that's immediate, but there's a certain bond that we have with the universal church if we can do good to someone in some place somewhere who is one of God's children, we want to do good to them. So the Westminster Confession has just kind of helped us to think that when you profess to be a Christian, there's a fellowship that you join, you seek to meet needs as they help to edify you as well. I thought that was helpful for us to consider. So what's our response here? Pray for one another's work. There's a lot of work going on in this room. <laughs> A lot of work represented in this room. Pray for one another's work. Talk about one another's work. Hey, how are you serving the Lord? I go to the juvenile detention. I, I lead a Bible study here. Uh, I, I do the meal train here. I help provide meals for people who are in need in our church at different times. How can I pray for that? What can, have those conversations. Know each other's work. Spur one another on. So, two responses to our wonderful salvation. Stand firm. Keep believing the gospel and abound in the work. All right? I'll close with Spurgeon. This is an encouraging quote. Listen to this. Our work is ended when our eye is closed in death. But our life is not ended with our work. There's something coming in the future. We shall preach no more. We shall no more teach the little children We shall no more talk with the wayfarer about the Savior, but we shall enjoy better things than these. For we shall sit upon our Savior's throne, even as He sits upon His Father's throne. Our heads will have crowns to deck them. Our hands will wave the palm of victory. We shall put on the white robe, the victor's apparel. We shall stand around the throne in triumph, and we shall behold and share the glories of the Son of God. O brethren, shrink not." For the crown is just within your reach. Never think of diminishing your service. Rather, increase it because the reward is close at hand. Let's pray. Father, would you encourage us to continue standing in the hope of the gospel? Remind us that we've been forgiven of our sins. Remind us of the fact that we will one day live with you. Keep us fortified in that regard. Don't let false doctrine, persecution, the bright, shiny objects of this world allure us or shift us off of our commitment to Christ. Help us to help one another. 
I, one of my prayers is from the Hebrews passage, Lord, that you would help us to think about how we could stimulate others to love and good deeds. Bring that to our mind today. And finally, brothers, the work, or finally, Father, the work that our brothers and sisters do in this church, the work of our hands, would you bless that? Would you keep us going? Would you remind us of the fact that you reward those who are at your work? Bless the work of our hands. Indian Bible College, Grove, the Standridges in Italy, the Nicaraguan churches, the ministry that we do in Bible studies, the conversations happening with neighbors and friends and family members, all of the work that's going on, would you bless it and help people to know that we do it in the name of Christ, representing Him because He's worthy of all praise. We pray this in His name. Amen.